Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you're here with us. Thanks for coming. This is episode 267 of the podcast. This is not just any podcast. This is the podcast. I want to begin uh, today talking about Christian nationalism and the classical order. There are a number of conservatives, I believe, who are reasonably concerned about whether or not this um, interest in Christian nationalism is a threat to the classical liberal order. Now, by the classical liberal order, I do not mean liberal—I'm not using the word liberal in the sense of uh, modern liberalism, as in the Democratic Party or, or leftism. I'm talking about uh, the liberal order uh, represented by an Adam, Smith's, Adam Smith's approach to the wealth of nations, free trade, free speech, maximum liber- liberty, that sort of thing. The classic liberal order. And for many conservatives who see this order under assault by the radical left today, think that the Christian nationalist response is sort of an overreaction and is kind of a, an Ayatollah-type threat from the right. So they see it as sort of a rejection of the classic liberal order from the other side, as though the left is assaulting it from the left and the right is assaulting it from the right. And they alone are left to defend the classical liberal order and our freedoms. But for um, the Christian nationalists, if, if we must call them that, the Christian nationalists, I, I think, are in a different position entirely. I don't think that they are assaulting our freedoms from the right, just as the uh, leftists are assaulting our freedoms from the left. Rather, they see and recognize that our freedoms require a more substantial foundation than simply bromides and cliches that are uh, mouthed in the name of the Constitution. John Adams, our second president, famously said, our Constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. It is wholly unfit for any other. In other words, without self-government, it is not possible to have free government. It's not possible to have representative government unless people are self-controlled. So there has to be, as Francis Schaeffer uh, taught, there has to be a general Christian consensus in order for form and freedom to grow up together. It's either going to be all anarchy, all freedom, or all form, tyranny, authoritarianism. And in order to have the, the sweet spot balance of form and freedom, structure, and orderliness, uh, structure and orderliness on one on the one hand, and liberty and uh, freedom on the other. In order for that balance to be struck, there has to be a great deal of self-control in the populace. Licentiousness is not a soil in which liberty grows. It just simply cannot uh, do this. So, consequently, Christian nationalists are not liberty-hating people from the right just as the leftists are liberty-hating people from the left. Rather, we see that what happened was a secularization of an essentially Christian moment. So, uh, for example, Protestant political theory 
and more specifically, Protestant resistance theory grew up in the aftermath of the Reformation. And I would say the best example of it would be um, a Huguenot book called Vindicii Contra Tyrannos, a vindication against tyrants, a vindication of liberty against tyrants. And we have some ideas of who wrote it, but it's, it's an anonymous book. And we have other examples of Protestant resistance theory, John Knox in Scotland, George Buchanan in Scotland, Samuel Rutherford also in Scotland, but Rutherford was one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly. And the, what we have to understand is that uh, the sort of the, the classical idea of liberty as, as uh, represented by John, uh, John Locke was basically a tidied up and, and sort of a sanitized and tidied up version of Protestant uh, explicitly religious and Christian resistance theory. Now, John Locke was still a professing Christian, but he didn't present his arguments with the stark and scriptural outlines that the uh, Huguenot who wrote uh, Vindicii did. It was more, um, it was not secular with a capital S, but it was secularized, right? So what people have thought is that what they've assumed is that our liberties began with sort of this, um, with the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, people like Adam Smith and a little bit earlier, John Locke and people like that. And, and so uh, when men come into the debate today arguing for an, an explicitly Christian foundation for our laws, it looks like the attack of the Ayatollahs from the right. But it's actually the recognition that termites have eroded the foundation of our liberties, and we need to jack this thing up and put the foundation under there again. So Christian nationalism is not a, uh, a device for us to overreact or, or uh, play the role of a reactionary and come in and take away the liberties of all the non-Christians. I would argue that the liberties that many non-Christians have enjoyed for decades are a fruit that grew on the Christian tree, particularly the Protestant tree. Western Christendom, and particularly the Protestant wing of Western Christendom, was the greenhouse in which our liberties grew. And so, if someone said, hey, let's have a matchup, let's have a big debate between Christian nationalism and the classical liberal order, we have to recognize that the classical liberal order has already been destroyed. It's already gone down. It's not like we um, are wanting to ab abandon a car that's still running well. We're wanting to abandon a car that has been wrecked, that has been destroyed. And we want to build another one very much like it. So this is not a battle between those who are tired of liberty and those who, who still want it. It has to do with how do we get back to the point? How do we get back to our liberties? We want them back. Always will be God. So continuing on with uh, podcast episode 267, uh, we're continuing with our study of homartiology, naturally. What does the New Testament teach us about sin? And what does the New Testament teach us about all the different kinds of sin? 
Epibareo means to overcharge. Epibareo means to overcharge in the sense of overtaxing someone or overloading someone. It is only used once in the New Testament, and that usage is by the Apostle Paul. And here it is. It's 2 Corinthians 2, 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. So he, Paul is interacting with the Corinthian church, and he is wanting to be careful that he doesn't um, load them up with things they cannot bear. If any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all, and he goes on. I don't want to overload you. I don't want to give you more than you can bear. I don't want to pile things on onto your shoulders that you cannot carry. So too often, we measure what we ought to say in a conversation, for example, by looking at or considering how much we are able to say. When we do this, we run a grave danger of overcharging the person we're talking to. How much we can say is one thing, but how much they are able to hear may be quite another. So many, many times, and parents do this, and teachers do this, and people in authority do this all the time, when they, they think they're teaching or they think they're instructing, when actually what they're doing is venting. They're, they're not trying to get information into the other person's head. They're trying to get churn out of their own emotional life. They're, they're venting. So they unload the truck, and what they're doing is they're falling into the trap of overcharging or overloading or overtaxing the person that you're talking to. When we are discussing or debating, or especially when we are admonishing, we need to be mindful of the other person's frame. And that's a good example set for us. There's a good example set for us by the apostle here. We don't want to overload people. We don't want to measure what needs to be said in this exchange by what we are able to say. We want to measure what we should be saying by what the other person is able to hear. God never My book review for this podcast, remember, this is podcast 267. My book review is by a gent named Wagner, and it's a short little book, uh, very, well, I think it's profound and provocative, and it's called Anglosphere's Broken Covenant. The Anglosphere's Broken Covenant. An Anglosphere would be uh, essentially the the historic English-speaking world. So, England, Scotland, Ireland, and then Canada, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Okay? And I was interested in this small book because I wrote an article for the now uh, defunct magazine Antithesis uh, that was uh, published back in the day, back in the Back in the day, I wrote an article for them on this same topic, arguing basically the same thing. And this book, I think, does a much better job of it, much more thorough job of it. Even though it's a small book, it covers the territory very well. And here's the thesis of the book. In 1643, uh, the nations of England, Scotland, and Ireland made a solemn league and covenant with the Lord. Okay, they made a solemn league and covenant with God. And the, this solemn league and covenant basically bound them, they bound themselves and their posterity to a, uh, a righteous, evangelical, and reformed service of God. Okay, now this covenant was binding. And although, uh, and, and then 
uh, just a brief history. There was the English Civil War. The Solemn League and Covenant was 1643. Cromwell, uh, Oliver Cromwell, ruled as the Lord Protector for, uh, I forget, about 15 years or so. He ruled as the Lord Protector. After he died, his son Richard was not able to hold it uh, together. And uh, Charles II was brought back in the restoration of the monarchy. So the monarchy was brought back by Charles II. One of the terms of Charles II coming back was that he subscribed again to the Solemn League and Covenant. All right, so the Solemn League and Covenant was contracted in 1643. There was the interregnum with Cromwell. Then after that, Charles II was brought back, and Charles II solemnly swore that he would uphold uh, this Solemn League and Covenant, which promise, of course, he broke. Now, here's the, here's the thing, and this is the thesis of the book. Wagner argues, and I think compellingly, that uh, you don't get to break covenants that way. And we all understand this. Let's say the United States made a covenant, a treaty, and a covenant with the Navajo, or here in the, um, my neck of the woods in Idaho with the Nez Perce. And let's say the issues involved in the covenant were still live issues like um, uh, fishing rights in the river or territory or whatever. Virtually everyone would acknowledge that a covenant made with the Nez Perce in the 19th century by our government would still be binding, right? Even though everybody who made that covenant is now dead. Now, if that's the case, why wouldn't, be, why wouldn't it be the case that the Solemn League and Covenant was still in force? Well, someone would say it was revoked. It was, it was repealed. Uh, <laughs> you can't repeal. If you're going to repeal a covenant you made with the Nez Perce or a, a covenant you made with the Navajo, you can't just do it and then announce to the Nez Perce or the Navajo that you're reneging. Uh, in other words, it, uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland entered into a Solemn League and Covenant with the Lord with God, and God did not give them permission to renege. And the thesis of um, uh, this book is that it's easier for him to show that Canada, uh, New Zealand, and Australia, which were legally and constitutionally descended from the Commonwealth of England, that they, too, were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, and still are. It's a little trickier with the United States because our uh, because of our break with the Commonwealth and the American uh, War for Independence. But he argues, and I think convincingly, that our common law is still British in its origins, that we were revolting against a particular kind of tyranny that had arisen in the, uh, in the British Isles, and that our Declaration of Independence did not remove us, did not take us out from underneath the obligations of the covenant. So if you want, uh, if, if you would like your political hair to be uh, ruffled, if you would like to have uh, some reasoning come into your life and make you think things you perhaps never thought before, I would get this um, book. It's a, it's a fairly quick read, Anglosphere's Broken Covenant by Wagner. <laughs>